On this episode of Of Mechs and Men, Takashi works on arts and crafts, Capet attempts some renovations, and when Heimdall takes the Silver Eagle for a spin, Melissa takes the chance to let her hair down. This is Of Mechs and Men, a Battletech book club. I am Kanan Hill, joined, as usual, by my two good friends, Brent. Brent, Brent. And Aaron. It's me, Aaron. How are we doing, boys? Well, is it me, or is the universe screaming in pain? Can it feel us pierce its flesh and rend its soul? Well, that's good, because this week we're jumping through chapters 40 through 45 of the book we've been working through. Warrior Unguard by Michael A. Stackpole. Let's get into it. Chapter 40. We open with the scene of Justin being woken up by Sen Shang, who is holding a gun. That's always the worst way to wake up, I think. Who among us has not been awoken <laughs> by a Maskarovka agent with a firearm? <laughs> Justin's not scared, though. He just, like, sits up in bed and tells him that he can put the gun away. He's just like, you don't need that. Come on. And now, Sen is hesitant to do so, however, because he knows that Justin killed Gray. I mean, hesitant, he really never fully puts it away, which is, in my opinion, wise of Sen. I do like that Sen actually compliments Justin on a job well done, though. A clean kill. Game respect game. (laughs) Very Capellan of him. (laughs) Yeah, he's like, uh, good work, though. Not good enough, though, because he's here in in his bedroom. (laughs) You can tell, I mean, I feel like Justin knew this was going to happen, right? He knew (laughs) that Sen was going to come looking. Judging from the following paragraphs, I would have to agree with you, Caden. And the thing I think that's most crazy about all of this is after we've read all of these chapters, I'm still not used to the stackpole pacing of this. Because it was right at the end of the last chapter, we were talking about like, oh, Maskarovka is going to come after Justin at this point. Like, when's that going to come back up? And it was just the next page. Like, it's the next chapter turn here. We're like right there. And... I feel like I should know better now. I should be ready for Stackpole to just say like, oh, here's a thing. I'm following it up with it pretty much as soon as possible. Yeah. When Shane got in his car, did he just drive to Justin's house? (laughs) Is that that where he went? In which Justin just... (laughs) Yeah. Did Justin slip in the window and pretend to be asleep? You know, this this isn't adding up at all. Yeah. (laughs) pulls the gun he's like justin we got to keep the plot moving sen is here because well he tells justin that gray had a document that was meant for him but he's still willing to pay for it we had a deal going and i'll buy it from you i don't care who i buy it from i just want that document but uh, justin refuses to sell i like uh, sen actually reasonably just tells him that uh could just shoot you and find the file anyway (laughs) i do have a gun but Justin admits that he destroyed it. Remember, he burned it up in the alley. Yes. 
Which, uh, that's not going to be enough to satiate Maskarovka, is it, though? He's going to want a little bit more than that. No, reasonably, he demands an explanation. This is where we get a master class. (laughs) Listen, Justin explains that he had discovered that it was all a ruse. He tells Sin that Gray was working with Lyran Intelligence to set up the Maskrovka, right? Now, he does tell him the truth about what it was. He tells him that the document was the passenger list for the Silver Eagle, but he says that it was intended to lead the Capellans into a trap. A trap that would lead an entire regiment down the drain, as Zhang states. That's what he says. He takes a huge swing here, but we'll see. I like Justin claims the list contained pseudonyms for his father and mother, right? He's telling them, oh, I read the list and I saw these names on it. Those are traveling aliases for my parents. But he explains that his father and mother never traveled on the same jump ship together. So in case there was a drive malfunction, they wouldn't both die. So he's like, right away, I can see that this couldn't be true because they would never travel together. And the pitch is that Gray would have sold the list and the Maskrovka would have cracked the identities and then jumped on the Silver Eagle in an attempt to capture Quintus Allard. Sen even agrees that it would be too good of an opportunity to pass up, right? He's like, oh yeah, we would have definitely tried to capture Quintus. Absolutely. Oh, and then I like it. Justin here throws in this little... uh. He claims that during his stay in the hospital, he saw body doubles for Hans and Quintus. He's like, I saw these dudes that look just like them. And uh, clearly, it's some kind of plot. He tells Sin that Davian clearly wants revenge against Liao, but I don't know what for. I don't know what they're doing. There's just a bunch of weird stuff going on. It's so wild. He's spun this whole... It's There's so much. He says so much stuff. And I love... We get this little italicized quote here where we get like a little insight into Justin's internal dialogue and he says two parts hospital rumor one part pure nonsense and a dash of family anecdote that oughta allay Shang's suspicions long enough to keep Andrew safe for the moment I like this because we get his motivation for this lie. Because right now, so far, it's like, what's the... I guess we kind of know. We kind of know because we know Andrew Redburn was on here. But he says it, right? He's like, all this is to get Shang off his back and to keep Andrew a little safer. Well, and my favorite part of this whole thing, the thing that I found the funniest, is that Justin takes this absurd swing... With the body double rumor, thinking like this is the most like fantasy based rumor I can come up with and just struck gold. Like it's the perfect lie that he had no idea was the perfect lie. Right. Dramatic irony as the reader. We're like, oh, wild. It's interesting. It's almost like the whole body double thing's part of the plot. Yeah. And I, I just love that Stackpole took like a little wink to the reader there. To like bring oh, up totally. body doubles again, but then it all it makes sense why the lies bought so well is because Justin wouldn't know about body doubles, but Shang would. Oh yeah, good point. He sells it. Oh, and this is where Justin instructs Sin to reach into his jacket pocket, where uh, Sin finds those uh, Federated Sons identification papers, 
with Gray Noten's image and description, right? He had all those uh, like aliases from his lockbox. And so you see Justin has taken the one for the Fed Sons and like stuffed it in his jacket. And then Shang pulls it out. And Justin tells Shang he tried to reason with Gray. He tried to tell him that the Capellans would be angry. But you know, Gray, he just told me that I'll just apologize for my villa on Verde. You know what I mean? Hey. <laughs> That's where they make Verde sauce. That's not true. It's a, gr- it's a green planet. <laughs> I like it Verde much. Primavera. <laughs> he tells Shang about how Gray tried to sell him the remainder of his operation on Solaris. But fortunately, uh, Justin declined. They tried to bring me in, but uh, I wasn't interested. To his credit, Shang actually appears to buy the story, for now at least, and uh, he expresses the gratitude of the Mask Ravka for all Justin has done for them. Does he actually buy the story? I don't know. He's not dumb, but he seems willing to play along at least, for now. I do love in this scene, we get the use of the gun, and it's in its direction to pointing at Justin, kind of acts as a, like, Mask Ravka is not or is buying this tool. I find that kind of a funny little paradigm. Oh yeah, it'd be funny if he's like slowly lowering it and then Justin says something a little suspicious and it like it like, start, it like comes <laughs> up again. It like starts raising. <laughs> yeah. And then it starts going. Yeah, it's like a little meter. <laughs> but they're good buddies now. Shane's like, you know what? This guy's all right. And the chapter ends with Justin asking Shane how he thinks Prince Davian will take the death of Philip Capet. He's going to kill him. It all comes together. Justin uses his gimmick so well here and comes off as very forward thinking. But I think by Stackpole adding in, in the previous chapter I was talking about earlier, where Justin was watching Noten's office get raided, to have that paired here with, oh, he built up his story from that point on. Like, he was ready for this. He knew it was just a matter of time. And as soon as it happens, he had everything, like, rehearsed and ready to go. There is something that uh, begs the question, which is, we understand Justin's motivation for doing this is keeping Andy safe, right? But... yeah. All in all, this is a weird, like, where is this just his loyalty to his friend? This is all very, like, confusing. I think Justin's alignment has only become even more muddied in these chapters. Yeah. I think that's the most interesting takeaway for me is like, oh, where does Justin sit here at the end of this? We know he's willing to lie to protect the people he loves, so, like, is this, like, killing Capet business? It, like, is this whole Solaris thing, is this all, like, one big gag? Or, like, is it something sinister? Like, what is this? It's... This is a lot of work for a bit. Yeah. It is a lot of work for a bit. Yeah. But it is muddy, though, right? Well, I took this from reading this chapter through the first time as this is just Justin in survival mode. He made the choice... And then from the moment he made the choice, he's like, now I've got to build up the alibi to defend my choice. So it wasn't so much about the continuing the Andy protection as much as I know the Capellans are going to come after me now. But why? You say he's in survival mode. Like, what is the point of all this? Well, he's probably trying to get tight with Shang, right? Trying to get in that mask Ravka. Seems to make the most sense to me. But again, I'm talking to the bigger picture. He's a mysterious man. Yeah. 
Yeah, what is he up? He's definitely up to something. Well, that's all I'm saying. And I think Stackpole's doing a really good job here, keeping that as a suspense point of what is Justin's end goal? Because even going after Capet doesn't even seem like it's priority for Justin. It seems like it's a rung on the ladder of what he wants to do, but not necessarily the end point. But I agree. We'll have to just keep going to figure out what that is. But even when he does kill Capet, so then he's Solaris champion. And then what? The whole time he's just been like, I'm here to kill Fed Sun's pilots. That's what I'm all about. And then eventually right. he's going to kill them all. And then, you know, <laughs> what's he going to do then? I'm just saying a scrupulous reader will be going, what the hell is going on here? Yeah. <laughs> and they probably have been for many chapters. But Stackpole's given you enough to keep you going. But the chaos ensues. We still got to kill Capet, though. He's still on that Capet joint. That's how it ends. He's like, I'm still all about killing Capet, though. He hasn't stopped. Eyes on the prize. We're going to bury this guy, okay? That's what I'm here to do. <laughs> Which is good. That guy sucks. <laughs> <laughs> well, we might not know Justin's end goal, but we do know his next step. But first, we'll have to check back in and what's going on on our space cruise in the next chapter. Chapter 41. The chapter begins, and we find ourselves in the captain's quarters of the jump ship Meridian. We're in a jump ship. We see the captain here, William Fister, and he is sitting at his desk, and across from him is seated a woman, Danica Holstein. Okay, so we get this conversation with Captain Fister and Miss Holstein here. So we've never seen these characters before. We're just kind of thrown in here. We're like, okay, we're, we're on a jump ship, captain's quarters, all right. Yeah, the chapter opens cold. New characters, new place. Yeah, exciting. And Danica is telling the captain that his chief technician is actually a Draconis spy. She tells the captain that her head technician knows this guy, and her guy told her that that's not the same guy. And she's here to help him out. She's here to let him know that something's going on, right? Oh, also, Danica's son is here, Clovis, right? And Clovis is in the corner, hunched over a computer. And it should be noted, as it is in the text several times, that Clovis, a gentleman of short stature, and Clovis is over here. He's searching through Monopole's computer files. He's over here. He's doing some Hacker Man stuff. And he is able to produce a file indicating that there is a Lyran intelligence advisory indicating that the captain's technician is an ISF agent. So he can pull the receipts. He's like, not only that, I got the receipts. And Lyran intelligence also says that this guy is suspicious. Lick is usually suspicious. Clovis also tells the captain that one of his helium tanks is suffering from molecular deterioration and the captain is of course shocked to hear this shocked because this is bad 
as Danica reminds us, if you lose the liquid helium, you can't jump. You need the helium. The helium is very important to the operation of a jump ship. And all of this is very upsetting for the captain because he's got a job for Monopole on the 21st. You see, he's been contracted to jump the Silver Eagle to Arai, and he's afraid he might lose his contract. Here's where we learn its importance to the plot in that Stackpole-esque fashion. It's part of this chain we talked about previously, right? Yeah. It's not quite a command circuit, but it's kind of these like bunch of jump ships that have been contracted to be in certain places at certain times. And so now we understand its relevance to the plot. This jump ship is going to be the one that's going to nab the Silver Eagle. Yes, this one is contracted to jump the Silver Eagle between Fomalhaut and Arai. But if their helium blows, they won't be able to do it. They'll be out of a job. Danica, however, assures the captain that everything's going to be okay. All right? She tells him that she's going to have her technician come over and help out. The captain is, of course, deeply grateful for her help. Oh, thank you so much. I can't believe you would do that for me. Of course I would. We're good friends. Whatever you need. I'm just here to help. Two jump ship buddies. Just looking out for each other. (laughs) She hits him with the like, just consider it a favor in the future that you'll do me. It's a favor. I don't need any money right now. It's just a favor. We out here. We got to look out for each other. (laughs) We are out here. That's for sure. Yeah. She tells the captain that... They have to clear her tech to come on board, but the captain needs to take care not to tip off the spy in the process. She's telling him, okay, we got to bring our tech over, but no one can know about it, right? We got to keep it hush-hush. We just got to sneak them in. Let's not make a big deal about it. No one needs to know they're here. We don't got to talk about it. We'll just slip them in. She'll fix the tanks. No big deal. And the captain is just so grateful. He is suspicious because that last little bit is a bit of a red flag right he's like you do that for me why bill you're too suspicious just call it insurance he buys it though she got him so then we do a jump cut to danica and clovis departing the meridian on their drop ship because they are returning to their jump ship the bifrost there's some interesting things here at play for me the The name of the dropship is the Bifrost, or Bifrost, and uh, for those who know their Norse mythology, the Bifrost is the bridge in which which connects Midgard, or uh, the middle place, with Asgard, the realm of the gods. But the the thing that I think is more interesting to me than the name of the dropship is uh, the shuttle, which is... uh, Called mistletoe. Mistletoe. So mistletoe in Norse mythology, to go with kind of the theme here, that's kind of been throughout on guard of Norse naming conventions, is mistletoe is this crazy thing that kind of kicks off Ragnarok. And it's a long story, and uh, you should check it out. But I do find it interesting that the name here of this shuttle is mistletoe. So they're headed back. They're on their dropship. Danica radios her technician and instructs her to take the dropship over to the Meridian and blow the seals. 
Oh, no. <laughs> They're going to blow the seals. What about Captain Fister? I can't believe it. And she tells her to make it look like sabotage so that they'll blame it on this other guy, Maury, that other technician, who actually is a spy, by the way. That part wasn't a lie. It turns out that that stuff about him being a Combine's agent is actually true. He actually is. So <laughs> that's okay. We also learned that while Clovis was accessing their computer system, <laughs> he managed to get the... Wait, Brent, is it Bifrost? He, he would know. Okay, for listeners, listen, Bifrost is a perfectly accepted way of pronouncing it. But in Old Norse, it is something along the lines of Bifrost. Okay. Which specifically breaks down to blinking mile or trembling mile, which is, I think, interesting. There's a lot to, like, break down. I like that. That, yes. I actually wanted to ask, because I actually wasn't sure. We also learn that while Clovis was accessing their computer system, he managed to get the Bifrost designated as the alternate carrier for the Silver Eagle. All right? So you see what's going on here. But Danica can tell that Clovis is upset about something. He's clearly upset about something. And I like she asks him if he's upset about killing the ISF agent. Are you upset that we got to kill that guy? (laughs) <laughs> and uh, But no, that couldn't be it, because nobody cares about ISF agents. He's like, what? No, of course not. Clovis <laughs> tells his mother that he is conflicted because, look, they've done some dirty jobs in the past, but nothing like this. This job involves hijacking a dropship to damage relations between the Commonwealth and the Federated Sons. And he tells her that it doesn't seem like the kind of thing Heimdall should be involved in. This changes things a little bit, huh? We learn now that this is a Heimdall operation. Yes. This is interesting, too. The Bifrost in Norse mythology, it is guarded by Heimdall. In fact, Heimdall is specifically like referred to as, in in Norse mythology, the guardian of the bridge to the Asir, a.k.a. the Bifrost. So we could say this would be another name that would upset Simon. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah, Simon don't like this. Don't tell Simon under any circumstance. Yeah, so they're Heimdall, that secret club. It's that organization. They get into it here. Danica tells Clovis that, listen, the job pays good money, and they need the money to keep the base functioning. Like, this is about the money, though. She's like, we need that paycheck. I'm going to be honest with you. And they also specifically mention that that money's coming from Gray Noten in that statement as well. So we get all the threads connecting. But there are a lot of hands in this cookie jar. Yeah. Yeah, this is getting outrageous. <laughs> like, this is, it's like a, a comical level of like involvement from multiple parties. The funny part is, is almost none of these ones actually know that the princess of the Lyran Commonwealth is going to be on said dropship. What a crazy set of circumstances. It's like a Coen Brothers film. (laughs) (laughs) Burn after jumping. It's it's so funny. So they need the money, but Clovis 
reminds his mother that they've refused other missions that could have potentially damaged the Commonwealth before, but yet she chose to accept this one. He wants to know why. So this is where we learn a little about their base on sticks. Again, with the mythology, most people are familiar with the River Styx, which being the river to the underworld in uh, Greek mythology. Most people in school read the Iliad and other things which feature the sticks in it. So I won't go into any more detail than that. But uh, again, hitting the mythology button. Yeah, that's what they, that's the, like the star system. Clovis mentions here that they have a base in the stick system and they harbor refugees there, right? They have a little club going on. It's a Heimdall facility. Specifically for refugees? They bring people in, right? People who uh, don't fit in elsewhere, it seems, often find themselves here. Oh, this is where Danica uh, gives us and Clovis a little history lesson. She gives this little speech. She says that Loki has existed for 700 years, and she seems to indicate that most of that time, it's done good by the citizens of the Commonwealth. She speaks fairly positively of Loki as an organization here, though. Loki, they're cool. They do good stuff. As an organization, Loki has been instrumental in protecting Commonwealth citizens from outside threats. However, occasionally, whoever was in charge at the time has used Loki against their own people. So, at some point... A number of loyal nobles and citizens banded together to form Heimdall. So Heimdall, again, is being positioned as this counterweight to Loki. Oh, once again, we get a mention of Pole's bow. Remember Pole's bow? That's where Katrina Steiner and Gina Clay first met. Remember that? That's where um, assassins came after Katrina and... Gina's father sacrificed himself and got Katrina off planet. That was that whole story way back from the beginning. It's a prime detail. I think it could be easily overlooked. Now, I like how Clovis responds by telling her that he already knows all this. What are you talking about? I don't need a history lecture. And <laughs> yes, but the plot needed a vehicle, my friend. Yeah. Danica's is just like, but what about the readers? And he's like, who? <laughs> we learned that Danica herself was rescued by Heimdall, but she was pregnant at the time. So Clovis has lived within Heimdall his whole life. And she does explain to him that Heimdall used to be more secretive than it is now. It's still pretty secretive, but it's more public facing than ever. You know, people know the name. and. Just like keeping this base of refugees is an example of something being unafraid to be openly associated with Heimdall, right? It's not that well known, but they're not trying to hide it as much as they used to. She says they're kind of just now in this era starting to kind of step into the light a little bit. Oh, and of course, this is where we get another mention of Arthur Luvan, that is uh, Katrina's late husband, who if you recall, was a member of Heimdall. Danica says that with Arthur Leuven's marriage to Katrina, he signaled to Heimdall that he endorsed her as Archon. But since then, Katrina has significantly curbed Loki's operations within the Commonwealth. And she said that, remember? She did. We, we talked about it. 
And we made a little fun about it, but it seems here we get like a second reference that probably is going to be more honest about it. And so I think we can say that that does seem like that's what's happening. And I like how in that statement, she mentions that by weakening Loki's power, it gave Heimdall more strength, but also removed the ability of the Archon to uncover more plots using Loki. So Heimdall's had to work for the Archon as well. So both organizations trying to support the Archon in those measures. That sounds like a hell of a conflict of interest. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like, well, without the secret police, they can't do as much secret police stuff. <laughs> but that also means that the Commonwealth is more vulnerable than ever. So it is Heimdall's duty to pick up the slack, you see. But again, they're not public. So any operation that they undertake, they still have to do it from the shadows. A little skullduggery, if you will. But they seem like true believers. They're all about that Archon. They really believe that they're doing something good here. Oh, maybe they are. Heimdall seems cool. But, oh, Clovis does, though. He asks his mother, how, if you're so loyal to the Archon, as you claim, how can you take a mission that would directly damage a policy that Katrina herself has endorsed? It is a little muddy. I'm with him. We have a little aha moment. And Danica tells him exactly exactly now now you're getting to the conflict this <laughs> me too she tells him that she's been struggling with the same question since she was first offered the job because she knows that hijacking the silver eagle is almost certainly a plot against the archon by her enemies and this is where she explains that that's exactly why they're the right people for the job. If anyone's going to do it, it should be us, right? <laughs> <laughs> this doesn't clear it up except to say, well, if we do it, we can control the situation, right? Which is what she's getting at. Is like, if we're the ones to do it, we can control the outcome. Yeah, that's the pitch. It's ironic considering what we know and they don't. Yeah. It also feels like there's a <laughs> cut line of dialogue here where Clovis comes in and says... So it's not about the money. And then Danica has to say, well, no, it's absolutely about the money. It's about the money. <laughs> Listen, Clovis, it's about the money. Hey, we got to eat. But... Yeah. Heimdall doesn't fund itself. I'm going to be honest, this whole chapter for me, it kind of reads, it's almost like a bit of English humor. It's a bit of a joke, right? There's some rationalization yes. going on here. It's a job so important that we need to make sure we're the ones doing it. <laughs> Or else it could go really bad for someone else. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's funny because Stackpole has the scene and he manages to maintain the tension even while also inserting a potential solution outcome. It's kind of bizarre, but it totally works. Yes. It's like the tension hasn't been cut, but also he's like removed... The potentiality of Deus Ex Machina. It's a real Schrodinger's plot device. Yes. Okay. I did think, however, <laughs> because their whole thing is okay, bad guys want to take the ship and steal it, and capture everyone, but we're not going to let them do that. Because we're going to do that. <laughs> because we're going to do that. 
And could you not, you could just do the job. You could just jump it to a ride, right? You could just let it continue safely along its journey, right? You could do that. But if you did that, you wouldn't get the check. <laughs> That's Kanan, I had the exact same thought of like, well, why doesn't Heimdall just take over the civilian version of the command circuit here and then make yeah. sure it gets to where it's supposed to go safely? Yeah. But then, yeah, it opens with them talking about how important it is to get paid for this. The thing is, everything would have been fine if they had done nothing. Right? <laughs> if they had done nothing, the only difference would they wouldn't get paid. <laughs> right? I'm sorry. I read this and I was like, okay. I mean, look, <laughs> I get it. Well, let's I be honest it. here. I don't think this is going to be the last time we're talking in Battletech novels that somebody makes a bad decision because they want to get paid. Yeah. <laughs> it makes total That's sense true. why they're doing it. It's just they're lying about why they're doing it. It is strange. I wasn't, um, I, they could, couldn't they, I mean, Hal Steiner has a lot of money. You know, if, you, if you want to they're help the Archon, it, actually. Yeah, you could just help the Archon. And I don't know. I, that was, I was like, hmm, all right. I mean, I see, I see it. Hey, you guys are going to take the thing. An angle I could see. Heimdall being a uh, secret organization and all, that they want to keep this channel of criminality open. They don't want to close it off for follow-on jobs so that they can keep doing their Heimdall stuff. I think there's rationales here that work. We were having a bit of fun. Yeah. But uh, I do think there is reason. Well, and I think the truest justification for it would be that they got the job from Gray Noten and not right. a Heimdall higher up. So this is a job that's being put out into the universe. So if they are not the ones to see it through, if they decline the job, someone's going to do the job. Somebody else was going to do it. And Probably, yeah. so uh, like, like we said, there's what they're justifying it with. And they're also getting paid through that justification. Hey, don't leave money on the table. Yeah. You see, Heimdall is more public than ever. Oh, so we're going legit? No. No, no. Not that. But, right. But this whole section, okay, so we learn what the plan is. They're going to take the Silver Eagle. Instead of jumping it to its intended destination, they're going to jump it to their base on sticks. That's the plan. This makes sense. If there are people that need protecting, they can control them, right? It kind of makes sense. I mean, I'm sure we'll be fine so long as nothing goes wrong, right? <laughs> what could go wrong? Couldn't here? even imagine it. it. It definitely won't be something we're talking about in a few chapters here. So they're going to steal the Silver Eagle, and that's the ship that Andy and Melissa are on. So it is funny. We're kind of getting a sympathetic view of their soon-to-be captors. And we've got Heimdall's plan in motion. We'll have to see how it all plays out for the Silver Eagle in the next chapter.
Chapter 42. We open with Andy and Melissa, still posing as Joanna Barker, hanging out with the captain on the bridge of the Silver Eagle, Captain Von Brunig, right? This guy's cool. He's the captain of the Silver Eagle. They're hanging out. They are currently in the process of transferring jump ships, right? We can see the large cylindrical form of the next jump ship just ahead of them, right? So they're mid-transfer. Andy is momentarily concerned when the captain mentions that the ship that they'll be docking with is named the Bifrost because Andy notices that the chart on the wall indicates that their next ship should have been the Meridian. Captain Von Brunig explains that, unfortunately, the Meridian suffered a helium failure. You hate to see it. It was deflated. Yeah. <laughs> Captain Fister, he's having a bad time. I hope he's doing all right. I hope he gets that fixed and he gets a new contract lined up soon. He seemed like a nice guy. I, I do like when the captain admits that he finds comfort, though, in traveling on a jump ship named after a mythological object. He's like, isn't it cool, though? It's the Bifrost. Huh? It's good luck. <laughs> I like how Andy immediately starts ripping into him. Oh, my it's God. True. <laughs> yeah, he starts teasing the captain and, by extension, all, quote, black ocean sailors of being overly superstitious. He's like, what is it with you guys anyway? The captain doesn't disagree either. He's like, yeah, we like, we do be like that. But he does remind Andy that the mud marchers would be out of yes. business if it wasn't for guys like him. He calls him a mud marcher. Homie hits him with the mud, mud marchers. marchers. It's like, that's yes. just like a nice way of saying dirt pig. <laughs> Excuse me, it's not dirt pig. It's actually mud marchers. Thank you very much. Yes. We don't say that anymore. Yes. Right? <laughs> Everyone's so politically correct these days. Can't even say dirt pig anymore. It's okay. They don't get a lot of news out in Pacifica. <laughs> so we get the signal that we're 15 minutes from jump and the captain invites Andy and Joanna to join him in his cabin. He's like, check it out. We can do the jump. Party doesn't have to stop. Come <laughs> hang out with me. And so that's nice. He takes him down this little hallway. When we get to the captain's cabin, we see that it is dripping with nautical imagery, right? <laughs> including samples of various sea life from around the inner sphere. He's got fish in here. Isn't that funny? <laughs> this is the least surprising thing ever. The captain has nautical themed. Yeah. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, dude, you're in it's space. It's like a stereotype. That's what I mean. This guy is like your yeah. favorite sailor's favorite sailor. Exactly. <laughs> yes. He's all about it. He's got that knot diagram up on the wall. Oh, yeah. yeah. The knot. He yes. loves it. Oh, all the pictures are framed with knot work? Yes. yes absolutely. Do you think he has a, um, like a life preserver hanging out? Oh, totally. Absolutely. Yeah. The, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And it probably has something witty spray painted on it in like yeah. that like impact <laughs> font. Yeah. 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 Listeners, being from Florida, this is almost traumatic <laughs> for us. <laughs> <laughs> we've, we've lived this room a few times. <laughs> 
Oh, but <laughs> we see that the captain's cabin has this sick, transparent ceiling, giving us this beautiful view of the stars. That is pretty cool now. It's a beautiful thing right there. <laughs> it's a beautiful thing right there. And von Brunig catches Andy and Melissa looking up, totally entranced by the view. Andy is mesmerized because I do like it points out that stars look better in space. There's no atmosphere. A lot less light pollution as well. It points it out. I was like, yeah, yeah, that's fun to think about. I, I, bet, that, I, I bet that space looks great when you're in space. <laughs> Good point. And yeah, Andy is completely mesmerized. He compares the stars to watchful eyes. He's like, man, it's like there's like a bunch of eyes watching me. We're getting a little Lovecraftian now. I don't, I'm not here yeah. for this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Andy's, uh, yeah, he's, he's feeling that like dread, you know, that cosmic dread. <laughs> the empty void called to me as the many eyes like pierced yeah. my mind and thoughts. You're like, Andy, no. <laughs> Roll sand. Yeah. Andy thinks it's beautiful. But Melissa does, though. She <laughs> says that to her, the void appears cold and unforgiving. And uh, the captain agrees. This is where he declares space to be an anvil upon which the meek are broken. <laughs> Only tough guys can make it out here. I see, really, we're just learning about these characters through their own perception of what they believe this empty void represents. It's a bit of a Rorschach's Starry Night, if you will. Oh, man. It is. <laughs> He's right. Hey, you could look up there and then you go, how old's this ship that we're on? <laughs> how many jumps oh, go bad? Yeah. No, it's pretty new. It's like only two or three hundred years old. <laughs> this one doesn't have helium seal leaks, so it's all right. What percentage of your staff is ISF agents? <laughs> <laughs> man, that would be a great, like, Davion, yeah. like, propaganda <laughs> poster. Like... <laughs> <laughs> it's the next I just like the, great John Boy's YouTube video. Yeah, they're, they're everywhere, though. They allow for some margin of error. Like they just kind of build it in that it's some factored. percentage of your staff is going to be ISF plants. What are you going to do about it? Yeah, you just got to you just got to go with like, it. Even the Kellhounds was just like, well, it's harder to keep getting rid of them. It's harder yeah. to deal with the new ones than the ones you know. Yeah. <laughs> So the captain and his guests take their seats when a warning indicates that docking procedures have been initiated. We're almost underway. From a view screen, they watch as the pilot expertly docks the Silver Eagle with the Bifrost. And Melissa is terrified, but she forces herself to keep her eyes open as the captain grants permission to jump. Final warning siren sounds throughout the ship. And this is where they do the hyperspace jump. And again, it's terrifying. <laughs> Every time that they describe a hyperspace jump, it sounds insane. Oh, I did mean to bring up earlier, when they go to his cabin, the captain mentions Draloxine. Uh He's like, oh, if you guys don't need Draloxine, you guys can come hang out with me to combat the travel sickness. Because, and I just know this from, this gets mentioned in... A bunch of books where a certain percentage of the population just really can't handle jumps very well. It like messes you up. You get really sick. It's like a seasickness. It's just like a thing. You either have it or you don't. But some people just cannot handle the jump. It like debilitates them for some time after the jump. It's unfortunate. 
Every depiction of it, though, is insane, right? It says here, the fabric of the ship crushed in on her in one instant. Then everything seemed to draw away and to stretch out like the distorted reflection in a carnival mirror. Just as suddenly, everything snapped back into focus with a nearly physical impact. Melissa shook her head to clear away the dizziness and fought against the nausea. So, yeah, you get, like, torn through hyperspace. This isn't the last time that we'll see how violent this experience is, but it's, it's, just an, it's just a necessity of space travel in this universe. It is one of those things that I just presume Battletech in its literature has no room to talk about it, but I imagine in the universe there are philosophers that go on for eons about the meaning and consequences of totally what does it all mean it's yeah. you you know theologians and stuff are just like Dude, constantly yes. like cracking open there are discussions like totally. what's the meaning of it it's this thing that like <laughs> it gets brought up regularly like you're saying but uh i'm sure that it is like a huge topic of discussion it's just <laughs> it's it's like you get just a taste of like dimensional ascension right just, <laughs> yeah just just a sampling yeah it's terrifying a little flavor yeah. of timelessness yeah. of infinite yeah. mixed with like nothingness yeah. and you're just like okay <laughs> and then you come back and you're like, what happened? And you kind of don't remember. Yeah. It made me think about how many people nowadays don't like flying and how miserable those kind of people would be in this instance. <laughs> so they complete the jump. They emerge from hyperspace. Melissa looks up to the view screen. We see this, like, what are we looking at? Because they're watching through this, uh, like, view screen. And it's not what they expected. It's we're like, oh, we've emerged near some strange, rocky planetoid she can see what appears to be a man-made dome on its surface that's all we get melissa looks up and realizes that something has gone very wrong and that's it that's the end of the chapter i mean we know what happened they jumped to sticks this is sticks it's that weird it's like it's like an asteroid well i mean you know it's like a you know it's a heavenly body it's rocky and they've got a dome on it it's sticks it's interesting the description here paints the scene really well a a, a planetoid larger than Tharkad City. So like it's it's not that big. I mean Tharkad City's pretty big, but this is just a little planetoid. So all things being equal compared to a planet it's rather small. He's right. It does seem like I they probably used a pirate point. Like they kind of jumped in closer than they expected. Yeah. Like, "Oh, whoa, 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 where are we?" It does seem to be a little, like, close. It's clearly, immediately everyone's like, oh, mischief is afoot. <laughs> that's it. We just, we just immediately cut away. They jump and we're done. Chapter's over. That's it. And this arc about this jump ship is finally completely underway. We've known about this since the very early chapters when Grey Noten accepted the job. And we've been building up to it. We know something was going to happen, but it's officially going down now. So it's very exciting. It's going down, but that's okay. Heimdall's got it. Yeah. Yeah. They're going to save them, right? They're going to save them. They're going to save them from their own plan. After they get paid. Yeah. <laughs> Once that check clears. Absolutely. Just, just consider yeah. yourself rescued. 
And with that, the agents of Heimdall know what's going on, and we'll have to find out who else catches wind of the plan in the next chapter. Chapter 43. Luthien, Pesht Military District, Draconis Combine, 23rd of May, 3027. I wanted to say that because right away we noticed that this chapter takes place on Luthien, and Luthien is the capital world of the Draconis Combine. It is here that we are introduced to two new characters, Sabash Indrahar and Takashi Kurita. Sabash Indrahar is the director of the ISF, and Takashi Kurita is the coordinator. Also, Takashi Kurita is the dragon. We're finally getting to see him. We've heard so much about him. Yes, we've we've been hearing about him, I think, since I believe Thunder Rift is the first time we hear about oh, him. Oh, maybe. Yeah. In yeah, comment? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's Karita. Yeah, you you guys have heard yep. of House Karita. <laughs> this is the god. Finally, it's and the these dragon. are in great contrast to the Hans Davian office scenes, right? Now we get to see what goes on in the combine. A little different. It's a bit of a different flavor than the old uh, like wink wink nudge nudge boys club. <laughs> I mean, this is great. I love this. So Indrahar has come to meet with the coordinator who appears to be practicing his calligraphy, right? He's got the rice paper and the brushes, and he's doing some calligraphy. It's very Japanese. And, oh, I do like, they're like sitting on pillows, right? In this scene, the coordinator directs him to be seated to his right, a place of honor. And so they're kneeling on pillows. I like, it's just totally, it's a completely different vibe. We get to see it's so, like, ice cold. (laughs) <laughs> it's much more ceremonial, right? It, this isn't the boys' club that is Hans Davion's office, right? This is serious business, and it's dictated by etiquette, right? It's all formal and formalities. Yeah, very similar to what we're seeing in the Uranaga scenes. Indeed. It's the vibe of the combine. The com vibe. <laughs> the draconis combination. Indrahar tells Karita that... He has some information that will be of interest to him, okay? So he has approached the coordinator because he has something to tell him. He's got something juicy. And I like he says that the information might best be described in terms of the Liao curse. Quote, may you live in interesting times. thought that was funny. Indeed. This is certainly 3027. These are certainly interesting times. So (laughs) Indrahar tells Karita that he has reason to believe that Melissa Steiner, the Archon designate, is currently in the Draconis Combine. How would he know this, I wonder? Yeah, how would he? How, how does he know this? The coordinator is visibly shocked, actually. He breaks his um, this serene pose he has because, you know, he's like, oh, this is interesting news. And he, too, asks his director how he knows this. And Indrahar tells him that they got the tip from Precentor Deron, Mendo Waterly. That's a name we haven't heard since the prologue. 
since the beginning. Linda Waterly. And if we recall, she, uh, despite being Comstar, has some alignment with the Combine. She's from here. Yeah, so right away you're like, oh, dude, she tipped him off. Because we've talked about this before, about who even knows about Melissa being on this ship? And the answer is one, Comstar. One of you mentioned, yeah, one of you mentioned that Comstar knows. And yes, that's true. Like that was established in the prologue that Comstar is aware. And you see here, oh, dude, Mendo totally tipped him off, even though they're not supposed to do that. That's their whole thing. It's like Comstar. We don't do that. But they do. <laughs> Surprise. It's like there's some sixth grade house. Yeah. Dude, Grayson was right. Once again, Grayson was right. So also, obviously, they conducted a further investigation. The ISF did. And it all checks out. I like that the ISF naturally distrusts Comstar. Of course. They don't trust anyone. The ISF doesn't even trust themselves. So Indrahar tells the coordinator that his sources suggest that Melissa is being held in the system known as Styx. And this is where they talk about Styx a little bit. And Karita asks Indrahar, he's like, oh, isn't that the system that once belonged to uh, Viscount Robert Monaghan? And Indrahar does correct him. There's like a moment of tension where Indrahar's like, uh-oh, he's not exactly correct. He like sweats for a second. He's like, well, <laughs> coordinator. He tells him that Monaghan owned the Styx Mining Corporation, but he sold it to a man named Wayland Smith in late 3025, which wasn't that long ago. Unfortunately, it turns out that Smith was a bit of a hustler, okay? Because Smith was able to procure investment under false pretenses. He had this whole scam going where it seemed like he was going to spin up a new mining op, but instead he just took the money and ran. He got all this investment and he just dipped. It was like a rug pull, right? If Wayland Smith is even his real name, I mean, come on, Smith, really? <laughs> yeah, Wayland Smith, come on. <laughs> and oh yes, the coordinator, appearing momentarily irritated, asked Interhar if they've been able to catch Wayland Smith. Have we even got this guy yet? And uh, unfortunately, it seems that Smith has fled to the Lyran Commonwealth with 25 million sea bills. That's a lot of money. Oof. However, they did have Monaghan and his entire board of directors executed. And I was like, oh, but that's not even the guy who did the scam. That's the guy who sold the company to the scammer. Anyway, they all got executed. It really shows the Combine's not interested in half measures there. I do want to note, uh, since we're on the topic of Waylon Smith, uh, that Waylon Smith is much earlier on we talked about Snorri Snorlison, and then I talked about the poetic Eddas and how he was responsible for really a lot of what we know of Old Norse mythology. Oh, yeah. Wayland the Smith is actually a character that takes place in the poetic Edda. And so I feel like given the amount of Norse mythology characters and ship names we've already had at play, I wouldn't be surprised that this as well is a little tip of the hat to uh, the Poetic Edda's again by Stackpole. You know what? I agree. That's pretty good. Yeah, th yeah, I like that. He's probably right. Good pull. So 
Yeah. They executed the entire board of directors. And now the abandoned mining facility is home to a band of, quote, malcontents. They haven't even worried about hunting them down yet. It's just some trash. Don't worry about them. However, Indrahar informs the coordinator that the current occupants have a contract with Frederick Steiner arranged by Gray Noten. So this guy knows everything, by the way. He's right. He's completely correct so far. Like, this is just the plot of the book. He's like, oh, yeah, I know what's <laughs> yeah. going on. Yes, Indrahar just, uh, he just read the book, really. Yeah. He was like, Stackpole, let me see that. This is the Simon Johnson or the Quintus Allard of the Combine. So, absolutely. This is one of the scariest men in the inner sphere. That is also true. And from what Stackpole's showing us, he's just as competent as either of those two as well. He's just as good. He's terrifying. Indrahar is the man. Oh, and I, I also, I forgot to mention, he talks about his nickname. People call him the Smiling One. That's what they say. Subash Indrahar, he's, quote, the Smiling One, but he's not smiling today. It's serious business. I do recommend people who, uh, if you may have not seen Subhash in source books, I recommend you check him out, type him into Sarna, and uh, take a look at the artwork representing him. You know what, though? This is totally what I saw. So, the Malcontents have the contract, and they have hijacked a dropship, the Silver Eagle, and jumped it to the Styx system. So, yeah, also, he's absolutely correct. He's absolutely up to date. And the coordinator asks Indrahar why he believes Melissa Steiner is on board. Indrahar explains that, upon further investigation, one passenger, Joanna Barker, matches Melissa Steiner in physical characteristics as well as medical history. He's batting a thousand. This is a, he's, yeah, you're, I mean, he's right. Everyone knows, by the way, this is a, this is not a very good, like, this is a terribly kept secret. Everyone apparently, like, is in on it. Mission failed in successfully obscuring Melissa Steiner. <laughs> really, barely anyone was fooled. So, Indrahar then tells the coordinator that, in addition, he knows Joanna Barker to be Melissa Steiner. He's like, at, at the end of it, he's like, also, sir, on top of this, I'm sure of it, by the way. I know this. This seems to speak to, like, the spiritual angle that is very much an anchor in the Draconis Combine. And it's also a little bit of Indahar taking responsibility, right? It's like he's saying, like, I'm willing to put my name down as saying that uh, this is her. Yeah, I agree completely. That's how I took it when I read it is that like he's putting his stamp on this information and he's saying it's yeah. not speculation. It's true. It's true. So we can act also, on this because it's I not bet, an idea. I bet getting a tip by Mendo Waterly helps a lot in confirming your suspicions i mean indeed did mendo was was she just like hey by the way it's totally melissa on the silver <laughs> like she might have so oh and then they have the little stare down right i love this karita this is when he looks up and looks straight into indrahar's eyes and they just stare each other down for a moment it says it's just like one of their kendo contests right he's sizing them up he's attempting to discern any potential bluff right as soon as Interhar's like, by the way, I'm sure of it. Karita looks at him and he just like looks at him for a moment and studies his face. He's checking for a bluff. 
but he must be satisfied with what he sees because the coordinator tells Indrahar that he respects his judgment and he assumes he already has a plan. Indrahar admits that, uh, yes, he already has an elite infantry unit on standby. So he's like, yeah, I got the boys, ISF jump troopers, got some hardcore dudes, they're ready to jump, they're ready to go. Which we know from our last run-in with ISF combatants. They mean business. Yeah, this is not a fun time for anyone they're going against. Now, instead of dismissing the director immediately, the coordinator takes a moment to compose an illustration. After uh, Indrahar tells him that he has troops on standby, the coordinator looks down and he does, he does a little drawing. And we see it's an eye with a strange bird in the center. And I'm sure already knowing the answer to this, he asks Indrahar if Styx is within range of Nashira. And upon confirmation, the coordinator orders the director to also send the Ginyosha. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> The Ginyosha, dude, here we go. Now you see it. Yep. Now what was like hot water is now boiling over. There's a little conflict here, kind of. The coordinator says, excellent. And then he stared at the brush painting he had just completed. And the quote here is, alert your unit and send it to sticks, but also send the Ginyosha. They will succeed in capturing the Archon's daughter if your people fail. And with one stroke, he does no dishonor to the ISF, but he also says, if you fuck up, my boys got it. Yeah, he does suggest the potential of failure here, which that could be interpreted as a little lack of faith. Or, uh, I mean, this sure. basic, he's like, this is an important mission. Send the Ganyosha, send Yorinaga. Also, it might be good experience, perhaps, for this new unit. I agree, Brent, with what you're saying here, that he's referencing the Ganyosha more as a personal side of his unit. He's sending his people to deal with it. The way I took that when I read it is, hey, the ISF isn't going to be the elite. The elite will always be in my grasp, and the power will remain with me, like a check down to the ISF. And don't get this incorrect, the Ginyosha is not, the uh, the coordinator has a unit that is his own guard. Mm -hmm. But this is very much like, the, the Ginyosha has clearly, as we've seen, been his baby in all this. Oh, yeah. Well, when you pair that with the statement of the ISF giving him the information, and he stares him down, he looks for any weakness yeah. in that statement, and yeah. it isn't the same vibe we get from Hans and Quintus or Katrina and Simon, where they're working in tandem. This gives you the idea that Takashi's always looking for a knife behind him. Yeah. See, I think of it more of like, it's like a check and balance. It's like, I'm confirming what you said in my heart, and I would expect the same from you. As in like, yes, he is looking for the knife, as he's been trained to always look for the knife. It's probably not a great way to live, but uh, it's clearly kept him in power. Oh, looking for the knife. That's pretty funny. Yeah, he is. <laughs> By the way, the name of his actual unit is uh, the Atomo. They have a really cool color scheme. Golden black. The Atomo. So this is great, though. This is our first look 
at Luthien. We don't even get like a lot of Luthien scenes for a while, but I always like when we get to see Combine stuff. I love this stuff. So I was very happy to talk about this one. There is something real important about, though, that we should probably talk about before we switch chapters, which is the fact that we learn that they're going to attack the Silver Eagle. They're going to try and kidnap Melissa Steiner. We learn the plan here from the people that are going to be doing it. Yeah, they're going to try to nab her. They're making a play. Now we have a few members of Heimdall. They're looking to snatch the Silver Eagle, working for Grey Noden. Yeah, they're working for Grey Noden, who is dead. Yep. Yeah, this is a mess. And now we it's got- It's a mess. Like, we <laughs> have the literal coordinator being like, send the Ganyosha. It's getting like completely <laughs> out of hand. So we're just going to have this dog pile of- <laughs> Yeah, this is, it's like comical. It's getting, this it is, is insane. Yes. Again, also, they should have just jumped them to a rye. Like, look what you did. Right? It could have been halfway to New Avalon by now. Well, we have the Combine's plan to get their target. And we'll have to find out what Justin's plan is to get his in the next chapter. Chapter 44. We're back in the Valhalla Club. Here we are, back in the club. Hey. And this one starts immediately by Justin catching Philip Capet trying to pull Grey Noten's shield off the wall above his alcove, right? He's got a little stepladder. So disrespectful. <laughs> That's so funny. I saw the little stepladder too. Like I saw him up there, like messing yeah. with it. Like, why'd they have to bolt it in? And I assume, since everything's Viking-themed, I'm assuming it is, in turn, a Viking shield with a big metal boss, and those things, on average, are 30 inches in diameter, if not more, depending on if it's sized for, like, a taller or shorter person. He's trying to, like, pull it off, like, and all his boys are watching him, he's like, watch this, dude, I'm gonna take this thing off, it's gonna be mine. (laughs) Philip Capet and his yee-yee-ass mustache. Yeah. <laughs> he's, just, he's such a loser. <laughs> Unfortunately for him, Justin, followed by Sen Shang and a group of battle commission officials, tells Capet to take his hands off that shield. This is amazing. <laughs> Capet cannot walk away with a win at any time. Anytime he tries to do... Anything, even as small as like, I'm just going to set up in this alcove. Somebody comes in, it's like, absolutely not, Capet. Bad choices beget bad choices. So really, the guy has it coming. That's not his alcove. (laughs) I'm here for every L Capet has to take. Yeah, Justin stabs a finger at him. That alcove is not yours. And he's right. I I, Also, I don't think that's the rules. I don't think that you get an alcove if you take someone's sign off. I think you have to defeat them in battle. So he's supposed to be setting an example for, he's the number one mech warrior. He's over here like, oh, you just take the sign off. It's embarrassing. And Philip Capet, also, now that he's been caught red-handed, and he's trying his best not to look embarrassed in front of all of his friends, basically tells Justin that 
he's not his dad and he can't tell him what to do. <laughs> and uh, Justin is like, oh, good, 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 good. He's gotten him fired up, which is exactly where he wants him. Right away, Justin comes in, humiliates him. Philip's getting mad, okay? He tries to do his usual tough guy routine, but by this point, no one's buying it. Everyone's looking <laughs> around like, the shines come off this one. He tries to be all tough. Philip asks Justin if, uh, oh, you intend to claim the alcove for yourself? And, uh, however, Justin reminds Philip that you gotta earn one of the alcoves, dude, which neither of them have yet to do yet. Uh, however, unlike Philip, he's not a coward. <laughs> and he knew Philip would try something like this, so that's why he brought the boys with him. He's got the battle commission. He brought the cops. And he's like, look. <laughs> and even they're like, you can't do that. And uh, this is just a bad look. Just, just, a, just a terrible look all around. How Desgra. I like how in the scene, like, Justin's, like, playing to the room, too. He's like, neither of us earned it, right? And he starts, like, eyeing all the yeah. other mech warriors, and they're nodding yeah, along they're with like him. And he's like, oh, yeah. I've yeah, got they're it. They're all nodding along. Yeah, exactly. They're on his side. Justin has worked the crowd on his side now. It's totally flipped from the first that first encounter they had in the club. Well, admittedly, uh, in Capet's defense, Justin has literally killed most of his boys. <laughs> it's a real thin mafia right now. <laughs> He's all alone up there. He's just up there <laughs> yep. in his chair. Well, this would be after he killed Sarah Carlson from Spanner in the works. I mean, it says he kills them all, so you can assume that he killed her too. So, oh, this is where... Justin expresses his belief that Grey Noten was more than capable of defeating either of them in a fair fight. And Capet knows it. He says, you know, Noten could kill either of us. Noten was a killer. He was better than either <laughs> of us. It's funny because Justin truly knows. <laughs> because he did yeah. almost murder him. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, oh, this is where yeah, Justin's working him, dude. Justin suggests a connection between Noten's untimely death and Capet's inadequacy, right? <laughs> you couldn't beat him. He turned up dead recently. What's up with that, Capet? He accuses Capet of the murder he committed. And just, I mean, this is a beautiful maneuver. I just, uh, I respect this. Of course, Philip scoffs at the suggestion that he would even be considered a suspect for the murder of Grey Noten. However, Justin reminds us, and everyone in attendance, that Philip has already demonstrated his capacity for murder when he forbade Billy Wolfson and all the other young mech warriors under his tutelage from ejecting during a battle, right? This has been a sticking point for him the whole time. About the whole, like, oh, you got this whole tough guy thing going on. You don't punch out. You killed them just as much as I did. I shot them, but... They'd still be here if you let them eject. Justin's just doing such a good job of, like, raising the thermostat oh every God. sentence towards Capet's anger. He is gaslighting him. But Very heavily. Capet, but Capet has it coming. And uh, this leads Capet to do exactly what Justin is kind of trying to goad him into. Now, this is where Philip, having never been particularly eloquent in the first place, and running out of options, again reaches for the patriotism. He recently tried this on Dell, remember? It's true. <laughs> and uh, that didn't work either, but he keeps going for it. This is where he tells Justin. It's the first thing he pulls out of his pocket. Yeah, usually. he's he keeps going for it. He's like, you know, I'm not the one who betrayed my country. 
<laughs> I love this. Justin just laughs at him. Yeah, Justin can't keep himself from laughing because uh, that's pretty funny coming from the man who got his entire command obliterated on Yurovin. What was Capet thinking? He yeah. knows for a fact that Justin knows the truth. Did he think he wasn't? He, did he think he could attack him directly with this and him not tell him the truth? Yeah, exactly. It's like, dude, this is the one guy that you shouldn't come at about this. <laughs> this is literally, he's seen your file. By the way, I wanted to shout a beautiful rhyming structure on this sentence by Justin. He says, this from the man who destroyed his command on Eurovan. And I was like, oh man, that's nice. Got Justin throwing bars out here. Yeah, spitting <laughs> bars. Yeah, Justin hypothesizes that if it were not for Philip's questionable decision to disregard the chain of command and rush his unit to the defense of his hometown, his family would still be alive. So, uh, yeah, oof, oof. Yeah, he throws in that statement of saying, like, if it wasn't for you being there, the Capellan forces would have never even recognized it. They wouldn't have even seen it. It wouldn't have been on their radar at all. Yeah. I believe even here in the Valhalla Club, this is what one would call fighting words. <laughs> Justin, dude, he cut brutal. He's going for it. He's going all the way. Philip parries this grim accusation by screaming incoherently, ripping the <laughs> plaque off the wall and running straight at Justin with it. But we see that Justin parries this unfortunate decision by Capet by a technique we like to call sidestepping just before blasting his rib cage with his meat hand in fist form. <laughs> he, which is a brilliant way to say that <laughs> primavera but also i love that he just gives capet the matador treatment yeah the simple side embarrassing step. and, and yeah, capet's he doesn't say side step, though i did yeah, yeah. <laughs> this thing i'm the writer he says justin dodge to the left is what he wrote and i was like he sidestep now philip going with the only option he has left, crashes into a table and collapses into a heap on the floor. <laughs> and oh, Justin, now looking down on Philip in every sense of the word, challenges him to a duel. Winner take the alcove. So long as everyone's cool with it. Right, guys? Huh? <laughs> and everyone's like, yeah, yeah, totally. I like to imagine he's like on the floor when he says it, like sprawled out in a mess. And he's like desperately looking up to people to agree with yeah. him. yeah. Winner I love that he's alcove. talking mostly to the crowd. He hits him with the, if others think it proper, I suggest we battle for the right to Doton's alcove. Exactly. It's almost as he's like lording over him, he's like talking to the crowd that's likely formed now between like the battle commission and the other people in the Valhalla club. We're over there minding our own business in a booth. Yeah, they're over watching the spectacle of a sloppy <laughs> capet just wiggling on the floor. The best way to deal with guys like this is humiliate them in front of their friends. <laughs> By the way, I think this. If your goal is to get him to fight you, yeah. Yeah. He's working the crowd. That's, that's like their greatest fear is like his like reputation. Philip just wants to be cool because he does the same thing. Philip does. Philip loves to do the whole like, uh, like Philip talks to the crowd. Like, hey, this guy's a loser. Am I right, guys? And they're like, yeah. But if you take that away, he's got nothing. Paper tiger. But Capet. Remains a fool. And uh, he says, 
Is that all you want, Zhang? A fair fight? Will you use your centurion against my rifleman? I assure you that I will not make Billy Wolfson's mistake. Man, he's even a coward here in accepting his challenge. He's like, a fair fight between the centurion and the rifleman? <laughs> now... I know I said that I think the Centurion and the Rifleman is a fair fight. It's pretty established in the universe that that's not necessarily the way things are perceived. Yeah. Like, Justin asks him, oh, when you mean Billy's mistake, do you mean exposing your back or accepting bad advice? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. He just really dug the heel in, didn't he? He's yeah, killing. that one probably landed just as hard as <laughs> the punch to the ribs. Dude, he's drowning. He really could use that shield about now. It's over. <laughs> yeah, Justin is touched by his concern, but uh, he suggests not losing any sleep over it. It's just beautiful. He runs a clinic on him. It's a beautiful piece of work. <laughs> on his way out, Justin does over his shoulder. He tells Philip that uh, he shouldn't count on getting that regiment that Prince Davian promised. When you die, it will be right here. Right here on Solaris, and boom, like walks out the door. This is an interesting thing to say, both from the reader's point of view, as well as likely for Capet, because this means that something's taken place. Either somehow, which this would make sense given Zhang's recent contact with the uh, Maskarovka, but alternatively, there is the possibility... That he just overheard Capet bragging, and I almost like that idea even better. <laughs> That's true. That's a good point. Yeah, like, you could see him like as he's like tottering on the step ladder trying to get the shield down. He's like, "Once I have a regiment, I won't need to do this anymore for myself. Yeah. I'm a guy who takes these shields down for me." Oh, I just like to think that like Justin's been like low key hanging out and watching Capet and he's like hitting on women and he's like, you know, if I take out Justin Zhang, which I will, Hans Davion himself personally said he's going to give me a regiment and my own world. He hasn't even begun to make good on the potential promise and I just can see him already flaunting it. It just seems like the kind of guy that Capet is. He's never getting that regiment. That's how you know that you're dead. Because if you know Prince Davian, like, that's not happening. No. So it's like, man, he would never. (laughs) He could have just sent a message saying, like, oh, if you win, you'll get a trillion sea bills. And it's like, oh, that's money in the bank. It's such a, it's like, you'll get a whole regiment and I'll make you a duke. You'll have your own world and like your vassals. It'll be, it's going to be awesome. Hans Davion literally promised him the world. Yeah. (laughs) The world. Yeah. To kill one guy. It's like, no, dude, this chapter is so good, dude. I love this. It's so short, but it's just Philip Capet getting owned. He's just getting his bell rung. Yeah. Like metaphorically and literally. (laughs) He gets so owned. It rules. I love that he gets set up like he's going to be. He just, he's just been getting dunked on. Like this whole book, Capet (laughs) just keeps getting dunked on and it just, it doesn't stop. And uh, I'm, 
I'm here for it. I mean, Stackpole comes back, what, 30 years later and continues to dunk on him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Incredible. <laughs> this could be somebody's first thing they read about Battletech. Let's make sure they know we dunk on Capet here. <laughs> yeah. This guy's a loser. So they got to fight, though. He agreed to it, though. This is it. We finally got yeah. it. We got the Justin Jiang Philip Capet duel coming up. We did it. It's in the books. It's been scheduled. It's what Justin's wanted since he got here. Will this satiate his anger? It is going to be. Is he going to bring a centurion? Because, I mean, he did get really lucky last time. It actually is kind of a tough matchup. Well, we got to see Justin be firmly in control, and we'll have to cut the Silver Eagle and find out just how out of control things have gotten in the next chapter. Chapter 45. We open with Andrew and Melissa arriving at the command center of the mining complex on sticks. Uh-oh. They, uh, they've been summoned here by uh, Captain Von Brunig. He's called a meeting. We learn it's been two days since the Silver Eagle was captured. Oh, I do love this visual, though. We see the Silver Eagle and the Bifrost are floating in this cavernous docking bay. And they have, like, the cables running to it. They're, uh, like, charging the jump drive. Imagine how large a jump ship is huge, right? A jump yeah. ship is very large. So this cavern is, like, I was trying to imagine it. I'm like, dude, that is, right? I was like, man, this that's kind of crazy to see a jump ship, like, docked on the ground like this. Or they're on a planetoid, as they say. It's this very large, rocky cavern. But they put a whole jump ship in here, and they're running cables to it. They're charging up the battery. It's cool. So they're all here in the command center. The captain called a meeting. Danica and Clovis are here as well. They introduce themselves before revealing that a combine jump ship has appeared in system. So it, it seems they're a fan of good news first, bad news second. Not only that, a <laughs> Fury-class dropship is already on the way. So we got an Invader-class jump ship. It's dropped a Fury-class dropship. Analysis indicates that it's carrying between uh, probably about 30 to 50 jump troopers, and it should be here in about two days. So a Fury-class jump ship is another Aerodyne-style dropship, and it's specifically a troop carrier. This information is alarming to Melissa. Because she remembers her training. It's really cool. This is where she takes Andy aside and she voices her concern about the dropship. She remembers about the different classes of dropships. She knows about Fury class dropships. The Fury has a has quite the complement of weaponry, but I don't think it's going to come into play here at all. Because the Combine, they're not going to attack these other ships. As we've talked about... Previously, the succession wars have really made that a taboo. And also, that would risk the cargo, which is clearly the, of what's important here. The people on the ships. That's correct. Yeah, Melissa remembers that the Fury is built specifically for hauling infantry and not mechs. And also, it can hold more than 100 comfortably. So, why would they send only 50 
why would they send anything but mechs, right? So she concludes that the troops must be ISF. They must be elite troopers because they could do the job with a company of light mechs. So there must be a good reason that they need boots on the ground. And this is where Melissa and Andy put it together. They realize it's because they know she's here and they're coming for her. Right. They do such a great job of reverse engineering the enemy's plan because they write a few light mechs. And I mean, that's going to stomp any resistance here on six. If their goal was to take the station or the ships, like they could do that easily. The fact that they brought a troop dropship and likely troops means that their mission objective is clearly to do something that requires infantry. We're in the era of the battle mech. If you're trying to capture and hold territory, you would use the weapon of the era, the battle mech. But there's only infantry. And what infantry would be good for is for taking prisoners, for attacking other infantry, for subduing passengers and extracting valuable targets, like the ones that are on the Silver Eagle. Smartly, Melissa puts it all together. She's the one who puts it together. Yeah, they completely take out the idea of this is a coincidental territory fight. And immediately put into action the like, okay, now what do we do in response to this? I love it. Melissa talks to Andy and Andy's like, all right, I got this. And he like pushes his way to the front. He gets in front of the crowd and he addresses everyone. He points this all out to everyone else. He's like, hey, it would only take like a company of light mechs to take this place, right? And all the other mech warriors are nodding along like, oh yeah, he's right. He's right. He's like, so... um. He tells everyone, that means that the troops on that ship, they're tough enough to accomplish the job they've been sent to do. And everyone's like, hmm. And then Clovis speaks up. He says, ISF, that would be. And so now Clovis puts it together. Everyone is like, oh, dude, they're probably ISF, which means these dudes are hard as nails. They're elite troopers, dude. The ISF is coming. They're going to kill us. Yeah, this is the equivalent of sending Tier 1 SF to go do a snatch and grab, right? It's like these are, like, they sent the best of the best to do exactly what they're supposed to do. It's going to be an uphill fight for them if they want to defend against this incursion. Are these death troopers? I, I think that's troopers? a good question. It it doesn't say, but I think it's, it's likely. These guys are cool. <laughs> Moon ninjas. You know what we say here? Honor above glory duty above all of mechs and men. So <laughs> we never, I've never said that. So Andy suggests building a plan of defense. He's like, all right, these guys are straight killers, guys. So we need a good plan to hold them off. And Melissa is over in the corner dissociating again, right? Wrestling with the voice in her head. She's having a whole episode. She is reasonably upset because she thinks that everyone's going to die because of her. Danica points out that this complex is not a military installation. This was for mining. It's like <laughs> not a good, it, it, she says that, you know, we have some hard points. You could defend it technically, but it's very difficult to defend anyway. And 
the ISF is sure to have good intel, right? It's not like they don't have maps. These are publicly available. Like, like <laughs> they obviously have maps. So we have elite troopers with good intel assaulting our position. And we're just a bunch of guys. They, they also have the maps because it's in their space. <laughs> Yeah, that yeah, was in something case forgotten. When Danica throws that out of like this isn't a military installation, it's a mining facility that we at Heimdall have used now for a while as a refugee camp. The ISF wouldn't have any reason to attack us and you're like you every reason you're here is a reason that they'd be here. <laughs> like because they're literally in combine space. Yeah. I want to be perfectly clear All about that. All we're doing here is stealing dropships. <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's a perfectly legitimate operation they have no reason it's like they haven't been assaulted yet because they it, they've had no reason to right they were there with yeah. some small fried like band of outlaws it wasn't worth the time right but now we got isf coming i want to be clear too so sticks it's like a couple of sons in it's not like on the border. It's like a few in. There's a major capital that it is near. And by near, I mean hundreds of thousands of light years. But it is right next to uh, Duron, a major capital in the Draconis. Not the capital, but a capital of a district in That's the Draconis true. Combine. So, yeah. I just like the scene. And to think about it in my head of Danica's putting up that big front for it. Like, there's just no reason. Uh, and she's like trying to push back. She's like, excuse me, Andy, the golden child of the Fed Sons right now that has universal reputation that we just absconded your jump ship with and took it directly into combine space. It's just <laughs> oh, yeah. like everything she's doing is explaining what's going on. Yeah. it's uh, So her whole thing is... We should just, we just should just give up. Andy, what are you talking about? We're not going to defend this installation. Are you insane? And <laughs> Captain Brunig, just being a real one, asserts that under no circumstance will he turn a single passenger over to the Combine, which uh, Danica thinks that notion's absurd. He's, she's like, you're <laughs> insane. I mean, basically what the captain is saying, we'll all die. Right. I'll let them gun literally kill all of us before I negotiate with them. And Danica's like, okay, are you sure, Captain? That sounds crazy. Like, we can give out like dozens of them and it'd be fine. Like, they got to want something. Yeah. She's like, no, we should call them because, uh, yeah, Danica thinks that if the ISF wants someone, we should just find out who it is and negotiate because. <laughs> She brings up the point that even if they were able to turn back the attackers at all, the body count would be unacceptable. It's like, let's say that we win, like literally <laughs> at what cost, right? We would lose so many people. Is it even worth it? More than Grey Noten's paying. This is, of course, helping Melissa's Zen calm greatly. Yeah. Yes, perhaps this is what you deserve, princess. <laughs> Yeah, her internal monologue, it's turned masochistic. She's fighting back, though. Oh, I, I do love Andy here. It's like, no, wait a minute. No, hold on now. Why can't we just jump out of here? Huh? We got a jump ship. Let's Why just jump. Why do you use the same voice to make fun of Andy that you used to make fun of me? <laughs> I think it was last episode we said there's a lot of tethers that we have between Andy and 
Oh yeah, <laughs> Brent said that. I did. It's only natural. That's just my. Uh, oh come on, think about it. You know, good idea. Think about it, huh? And uh, the captain explains that uh, the KF drive isn't done charging. And Andy asked, "Why? Why can't we just charge it faster?" <laughs> You know, just crank it up. Just crank it up. <laughs> Listen, I understand exactly why this line is here. It's for the readers, but it is very funny <laughs> to me to think that Andrew Redburn has traveled from the Capellan March to Tharkad and not come to understand how jump ships work. <laughs> <laughs> if that's true... I think it's hilarious, <laughs> but of course this is here for us, the readers. Yes, because we get a paragraph where the captain explains the risks of fast charging. You see, Lieutenant, it's not the amount of energy needed to charge the coil that matters. It's the length of time required to do the job. Energy fed in too fast can damage the KF drive and a speedy loading would probably rupture storage cells or blow the liquid helium seals. It could even result in a misjump. And uh, he says that only an idiot or a very desperate man would jump after having spent less than a week recharging his drive. Remember that, all right? Only an idiot or a very desperate man. <laughs> when I read that line, I was like, oh, we are guaranteed to see that in the future of Battletech now. Guaranteed. Exactly. <laughs> yep. it's, uh, I was like, okay, yep. check off jump drive. <laughs> yeah, you know, I wonder how long it'll take. Start the clock. Yeah, start the clock. <laughs> now, hearing all of this, this only serves to confirm Danica's assertion that if they do not negotiate, they will all die. She's like, thank you, Captain. It's, there's no way out of this. All right? So even now, Andy agrees that, I don't know, maybe negotiating is the wisest course of action. He serves himself up, though. He's like, maybe they want me. I'll go talk to them. And again, Captain Bruning is like, no, no, no one's talking to them. I refuse. I refuse to surrender a single passenger. And then a woman's voice from the back, strong and clear. I remove that responsibility from you, Captain Von Bruning. This is where we see Melissa walks forward and pulls the wig off. Everyone sees the famous gold hair. And everyone's quiet. She walks forward. She says, I am the one they want. I am Melissa Arthur Steiner. And no one must die because of me. She lifted her head as everyone in the room, including Danica Holstein and Andrew Redburn, dropped to one knee. Only Clovis remained standing and dared to break the silence. Oh, this makes it very interesting indeed. Now we have a princess, and the Cretan's second invader, hauling an overlord, has just arrived. Dang. <laughs> it's getting messy. She reveals herself. This is getting crazy. Yeah, it's, getting, it's crazy. getting real messy. This yep. is awesome. I wonder if that the second jump ship might be the Ginyosha, right? That's that's what I was thinking that, when I was reading through yeah. it. Is oh man, it's just getting worse and worse. Stackpole's just like cranking down on the tension here. Just like we're he's not leaving any room to even breathe through it. Where it's just like I got to know what's happening next. 
we all played pen and paper role-playing games together, right? And uh, Aaron, you taught me something I'll never forget about writing in that context, which is you always want to create scenarios in which you're sure you're going to kill your players, and then you spend the entire session trying to figure out how to make sure that they don't die so that you end up like almost fighting against yourself. And uh, I can't help but think that Stackpole has taken this same kind of ideology here in his writing because he has really loaded down our protagonists with quite the heavy payload. Oh yeah. And has not given them a lot of tools to pull from to get out of the situation. We don't even know if they're armed yeah. at all. This is this is just a luxury dropship. This is just a like a, a cruise liner. Yeah. Also, this is remember, not everyone is in this room. It's actually just kind of like you know the people who needed to be here. That's right. why uh like Andy brought Melissa along, but I think that the captain just wanted Andy. He was like, Oh, I brought Melissa. I brought Joanna Barker too. He's like, Oh, weird. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, there's still like what 300 some passengers. They're just chilling on the dropship. I feel like they're still rolling, you know, lunch service. Yeah. Like they're just in there. They got the karaoke going. You know, I don't know <laughs> what they're doing. They're still cooking. Shuffleboard. Yeah. They're playing shuffleboard. They're like, listen, we got all this. We got to cook it. You wouldn't want to alarm everyone. Though, I imagine there are some people gathered around some of the windows, some of the portholes going, yeah. what's that out there? <laughs> yeah, what's going on? What's this planetoid? Why are we on this planetoid? Yeah, I'm not. I'm unfamiliar with this planetoid. <laughs> Honey, <laughs> we have a buffet to hit in 30 minutes. Yeah. The captain's told, like, uh, pull out the lobster and steak. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Keep everyone Two distracted. Drink specials going all night. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. We got drink specials. They're having a good time. <laughs> but no, I mean, it is a stackpole knows everything's converging here. He planned for everything to converge at this point, And he's striking when he needs to. He knows that this is the part where you got to amp everything up. And he is, and he's doing a great job at it. I think they call it the climax. He earned it too. The setup, yep. though. The setup. It's like, we're not it, even done, though. We're like, this is good, just going to get worse. We still, we're not, <laughs> we still got some books really, to go. There's still a lot of book to go. <laughs> yeah, we're, this is what we're like halfway through part three, and there's still a part four. Yeah. You're like, oh man, something's, some stuff's going to go down. We're just getting warmed up here, but we have a princess, and the second dropship has just arrived. I like how Clovis at the end, though, he's just like rubbing his hands together. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. He's going sicko mode. <laughs> it's going to be a bloodbath. That's the setup back to back. We're going to have a fight with Justin Capet, and we got Melissa and Andy. They're stuck on this planetoid, and the combine is coming. <laughs> we got ISF. We got Ginyosha. And we got the stalwart defenses of the Silver Eagle. It's going to be great. A battle for the ages. So this is the part of the episode where we uh, metaphorically hand Aaron the mic, and uh, he tells us what he thinks is going to happen in the coming pages. Well, we got fighting coming up. <laughs> no, I, I mean, Stackpole has set up all the conflicts here to kind of kick off in the same space. 
we had the Kellhounds with their date shenanigans and the Swamp Panthers, which we haven't heard from for a little while. That's always suspicious, right? Yeah. Anytime Swamp Panthers are involved. Oh, I just meant there's some distance that has been from that arc. Yeah. Right? They're still yeah. in that little cave. They're yeah. still there. Which is also really funny to think about that every time we've heard from the Ganyosha, it's been ramping up towards that fight with the Kellhounds. But now we yeah. know the Ganyosha are heading towards Andy and Melissa, at least yes. a part of them. And we have Justin finally securing his fight for Capet. As we mentioned earlier, we've got half of this part remaining and part four. So I would assume that the rest of this part of the book is going to be resolving these battles, which are going to create a whole new set of problems. And Yes, exactly. But Stackpole's done so good of setting up this first two-thirds of the book to know you were going to get to this part, but not really play his hand of what's coming after it. It's true. I was going to gaslight you a bit and, and say something to the effect of, well, Brave, the prediction is that they're all going to fight. Yes. I think inevitably you're correct about that. But you're right. Stackpole hasn't given us a lot to work with past this point. It does seem like the fight's inevitable, but mm-hmm. the consequences and where it's going, they're very much up in the air, which is good. That means that the yeah. focus is here and now yeah. on the consequences of... like. Like, the tension is here. Will the princess survive? Will she be captured? Will Mm -hmm. she be safe? Do these characters make it through this conflict? That's where the focus is. It's not into the future. Well, and taking that step back and going, this is a trilogy. This isn't over at the end of this book. So the consequences of these next few chapters are going to be fuel for the arcs of the remaining two books that we're going to see. I'm sure there'll be new things. It's not like Stackpole runs with just a few characters here. But at this point, for all the outcomes, I feel like Stackpole is going for any prediction you're trying to make isn't going to be correct. So excited. (laughs) Oh, I am too. This was probably one of the hardest times I've had so far. Stopping reading. Every time we've asked you that, you've said the same thing. You're like, this has been so hard. It it is. It's getting harder every time where it's just like, I want to go to that next chapter page so bad. Like, I see the chapter break. I have to put it down. But now it's, I I don't know what's going to happen, but I do really want to find out. I have a question. What about potential character deaths? What do you think? Make a prediction. Oh, potential character deaths? Yes. If you were to kill someone. If I had to kill somebody, which I wouldn't want to do, I'd kill Andy. Yes, you think Andy might die? Maybe he will. Interesting. Very exciting. Andy has been this little beacon of good in this story. Yeah. He's the most innocent, right? Yeah. That's kind of his role. He's stuck up for what he's believed in. Yep. He's got Misha. He's got Misha. He's been true to her. He's been true to himself. He's He's finally gotten to decompress from Justin and the experience he had through that. He's had an arc. And if I wanted to gut punch... He's not tainted by politics. He's very much playing the innocent here. Like, his hands aren't dirty. He's too innocent to live in Battletech. (laughs) (laughs) So that's, that's my prediction. That rules. Luckily, I'll get to find out. 
how this all shakes out next week when we continue on through Warrior On Guard. This was another episode of Of Mechs and Men. I am Kanan Hill, and I was joined by my two good friends, Brent and Aaron. We would like to thank the author of this book, Michael A. Stackpole, and of course all the other writers and artists who work so hard to keep Battletech alive. We would like to thank Catalyst Game Labs for being such generous stewards of the property. We have an email, advice at heat.management. If you have any questions, corrections, please, advice at heat.management. We're on social media, Instagram, Twitter, at of mechs and men. You can also find us hanging out in our booth in the Valhalla Club podcast discord. Please, we're on there all the time. It's very easy to get in touch with us there. We're always in there hanging out, playing Mech Warrior, or hanging out with the uh, other podcasters. So uh, feel free to check it out. It's a great time. The link will be in the description. Also, feel free to leave a review on your favorite podcast app. Every little bit helps. We will return next week to continue our discussion of Warrior On Guard by Michael A. Stackpole. Until then. Till next time. Say la.